Well, good evening. I'd like to take your Bibles, turn to Acts 17. That will be our launching place for our study tonight, Acts chapter 17. While you're turning there, let me welcome each one. We have a good number for our Sunday evening study and worship tonight. We're glad to have you. As I look out over the audience, I know we have guests again tonight. We had many guests this morning, as you were well aware, people visiting from not only the community, uh, friends of different me members that had brought them. I know we had one couple visiting from Florida, and uh, tonight I understand we have someone as far away as St. Lucia, so you've come a long ways. So we're glad to have each one that's in our number tonight and hope that you are edified and uplifted by our study together and by our worship to God. I wonder if you are aware that today is a rather ignominious anniversary. I thought maybe there'd be something in the newspaper about it, or I haven't really seen anything or on the news, but it's the 44th anniversary of the landmark Supreme Court decision that legalized abortion. This epic decision has now left over 58 million babies dead since 1973. Many women scarred for life, physically, mentally, emotionally, and certainly spiritually. I agree with a woman by the name of Norma McCorvey who said, I don't think there's a good reason for an abortion. It's not your body. It's not your choice. Because you got that from God, he gave it to you. And I would dare say that most of you would agree with that. You may wonder, why are you quoting Norma McCorvey? Who in the world is she? Well, she was a Texas woman who at the age of 21 was pregnant for the third time. She didn't have a husband. She was in a very low-paying job. She didn't need another child. And this was back many years ago before abortions were legal. She lied and said that she was raped because Texas laws then would allow abortions in such situations. However, she was found out and her scheme failed. And so then she tried to get an illegal abortion, but she was also unsuccessful. She eventually gave birth to the child that was eventually adopted. But Corby's situation, though, led to a lawsuit. And I see some of you grinning a little bit. You're ahead of me. You have guessed or either know that Norma McCorvey is actually Jane Roe, the plaintiff in Roe v. Wade. There is an epilogue that is ironic to that story, and you all being in the Metroplex may already know this. She uh, was a part of the pro-choice movement for many years and was very involved and active in that movement. Since then, though, she has left that movement and been active in the pro-life movement, has written two books, and has even been involved in trying to overturn Roe v. Wade, but certainly to no avail. Norma said her change occurred in 1995, and she was working in a clinic in downtown Dallas. And Operation Rescue opened an office next door, and she came became friends with a fellow by the name of Philip Flip Benham, Benham, who was against abortion based upon biblical principles. 
One day he showed her a chart of a baby's development and it caught her eye and she became, became convinced that abortion was wrong. Later she would admit that she had been used by liberal lawyers to advance her cause and went on in one of her books to charge that doctors and clinics were more concerned about profits than people that were hurt. She now looks at the baby in the womb as a child and not just a mere fetus. And I would suspect that most of us in the room would agree with that. And yet, I dare say that through the years, these 44 ensuing years since that Supreme Court decision, that by and large, that members of the Lord's Church, individually, I'm speaking of, not collectively, but individually, have probably not been as active as we could be in standing up on an issue like this. Unfortunately, it has become, in the minds of many, a political issue. I'm not preaching tonight about it from a political viewpoint, not at all, because I believe it's a biblical issue, it's a moral and ethical issue, and it's certainly more than just a matter of choice. I preach on it because this is the anniversary of that day, and I think that ever so often it's probably good for us to look at things like that. I think that also we might take for granted that everyone agrees with us, and that's not the case. And I think our young people that are here tonight need to hear where we stand and why we stand and where we do and what the Bible says about this particular issue. I am aware that there have been through the years where I have preached people that have given in to the temptation of this sin. I was preaching at a place a number of years ago, and a young lady asked to speak to me in private. She came to my office, and we talked, and I could tell she was burdened by something, and she began to pour her heart out to me. She was a teenager, by the way, I think maybe 18 at the time. But a couple years earlier, she had gotten pregnant and went to a clinic in the little town where we lived, and they set her up for an abortion, and she had an abortion. I would have never dreamed it. She was involved in Bible class, came to church every Sunday. Her parents were faithful members of the congregation there. But she was distraught because her conscience was bothering her that she had done that. So we might not like to think that happens among us, but I think if we're honest, it does happen sometimes. Well, let's begin in Acts chapter 17. This may seem like an unusual text to you, but I think you'll see the point of it as we, as we go along into the study and think about what the Bible says on the sanctity of life. To the Athenians of Mars Hill, Paul said, Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. 
For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Therefore, since we are of the offspring of God, we ought not to think of the divine nature as like gold or silver or stone or something shaped by art and man's devising. Let's stop there. We'll come back to this text a little bit later. Let me suggest a couple major reasons why life is sacred and why I believe that abortion is wrong. First of all, because of who God is. And I begin here in this text because this reminds us of the nature of God and the personality of God and the character of God and who God is. This text reminds us that God is the creator of life. God is our maker. God is the originator of all things. And it is through him and his son, Jesus Christ, that everything exists. Paul, in the Colossian letter, put it this way in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And so we need to be reminded that he is Lord, and that he is in need of nothing from us, and that he is the creator of all life. That leads us in to understand the point that he is the provider of all life. And this text says that he gives life to all and that breath comes from him as well as all things. Psalm 127 and in verse 3, the psalmist said, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. And why is that? Because he's the creator of life and he is the provider of life. The psalmist said in Psalm 139 and verse 13, For you created my innermost being and knit me together in my mother's womb. You see, the Bible teaches that God is the power behind life. That God is the power behind conception. You know, we read in the Bible, in the Old Testament especially, in different places, where God closed the womb of one woman and he opened the womb of another woman. And so that's within the prerogative of God and the power of God because God is the provider of all life. But then let's take it a step further. That God is not only the creator of life and the provider of life, he is the predestinator of all life. Now, I didn't check my dictionary on this. My, my uh, spell check said this is not a word. But if it wasn't, it is now, because I just made it so. He is the, you like that, don't you? He is the predestinator of all life. Now, the book of Ephesians talks about how God has predestined and foreordained and, and has predestined you and I to be in Christ. But he is the predestinator of life. This text that we just read in Acts 17 said that God has determined the appointed times and the boundaries for mankind. That's in the prerogative of God. The wise man in the book of Ecclesiastes expressed it in these words. He said, to everything there is a season, 
a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. And so all of that speaks to the fact that God is the predestinator of all life, all life. All of it goes back to Genesis 1, and God is the predestinator of it. Again, in this text in Acts 17, he said that it is God that made of one blood every nation of mankind. There is not one person or one nationality or one race or one ethnic group that has a higher standing or is more deserving of life than another. All human life is sacred. And God has predetermined man's appointed times and boundaries. Now, since there is a time to be born and there is a time to die, it stands to reason, therefore, that it is not ours to decide. It's not ours to decide that. And so abortion, infanticide, euthanasia, homicide, all of these things are a revolt against God and an attempt to usurp the authority of God and the prerogative of God and the plans of the Creator. We just hear so much in our culture today about choice and about rights. And of course, we hear this thing, and I, I think if I was a female, it would be an insult to me. I don't know how you ladies feel about it. But to talk about a woman's right to choose, and when you say that, it is wrapped up in one issue, and that's abortion. As if that's it, a woman's right to choose, has to do with aborting her baby. Ladies, you don't have the right to do that. It's not your right to choose. Because it's God that gave us the body. It is God that created life, that provides life, and is the predestinator of life. It is God who purposes life. There's a time to be born and there's a time to die. And we don't take a life just because that life is inconvenient and doesn't fit into our plans. You know, there, there has been for several years, we don't hear really anything about it in the mainstream media, but I can show you articles and books in my library of those of this liberal mindset who now have got us sold on the idea of abortion that are trying to teach the idea that, well, when a person gets old and, and they get to a point where they're not productive anymore and they're just a drain upon society, what's wrong with taking their life? What's wrong with euthanasia? I mean, you're doing them a favor. You're putting them out of your, their misery and, 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 and you're helping the economy and not putting a burden on people. Now, you see, we haven't got to the point yet where that's accepted. There have been cultures in bygone days where that was accepted. But if we keep moving farther and farther to the left and buying into this notion that it is our right to choose, then someday we may get to that point. Well, it is not our right. And then finally, it's because God is the sustainer of life. In our text here in Acts 17, he says, For in him we live and we move and we have our very being. Our existence is sustained because of God, because of who he is. 
You know, I, I've even run into some Christians sometimes that seem to have this notion of God like he created everything and now he just kind of sits back with his arms folded and just watch everything happen. I don't believe that. I believe in the providence of God and the working of God in the world today. And this passage teaches us that as we live today, our very breath, ever breath, is because God lives and in Him we live and He sustains our very existence. Without God, we cannot live because He supports life here upon this earth. And so I suggest the first reason why that, that human life is sacred and that we ought to look at, at the life of the baby in the womb is sacred is because of who God is. Well, then that leads us then, necessarily, if we accept this, to understand this. Life is sacred because of who we are. And so what that means is we have been created in the image of God. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27, in the beginning, God created man in his own image. And in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Now, there's some debate at different times about what this means. Now, we know that God is not flesh and blood. We know that God is not in a physical sense. And so when we think about being created in the image of God, and we look that God is a spirit, then that must mean that we have been given a spirit. And thus, we have a spirit that is created in the likeness of God, in the image of God, and we're made with a capacity to be able to respond to God. In our evidence study that we had last quarter on Wednesday night, you know, we talked about the difference in that study between the, the plant and animal, animal kingdom and human beings. And, and, and I know that, that some of you love your pets and how smart your dog is or your cat is, and that, that's all well and good. But I doubt very seriously that you're going to go home and you're going to find your dog listening to classical music or admiring a beautiful painting or involved in some intellectual pursuit. That it is mankind that God is endowed with the capacity of rationality of an ascetic nature, of a, of a spirit that is able to think and to reflect and to think about thinking and, and to make decisions, that we rise above our impulses and our desires and an animalistic nature. We have a conscience. We've had dogs through the years. I've never had a dog that had a conscience. <laughs> now, I know you can train an animal, but that's all it is. It is trained. We are created in the image of God. And because we're created in the image of God, then we ought not to destroy life created in the image of God. That leads us into the second point of this, which naturally follows. Therefore, we are of the offspring of God. And this is mentioned in this text here. In fact, Paul even quotes the Greek poets that understood that very thing. In Psalm 119, and verse 73, the psalmist said, Your hand made me and fashioned me. 
And then I think of the statement of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1 and verse 5. More specifically to our point tonight, Jeremiah said before, or God said to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. And so now we're moving closer and closer in Scripture to say, oh, you mean that which was in the womb is more than just a clump of flesh or a fetus or a clump of cells or something? No, he says, he says I, I formed you in the womb. I knew you in the womb. I knew you before you were born. He said, I sanctify you. You know, we think of offspring as that which comes from our parents. But we are the offspring of God. In fact, in Psalm 139, in verses 15 and 16, David said, My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And so David affirms the fact that when he was in the womb, that God knew him, that God saw him, that God formed him, that he indeed was a person. There is a personal and intimate involvement with God. And each human life is woven by him. And he knits together each human frame from the womb. I did a study a couple years ago when I was actually writing a, a blog on this. And I came across the, this biblical point that I think is, that is telling. The Bible uses the expression, at least in the New King James Version and most other versions similar to this, with child, with child, 26 times to refer to pregnant women. Interestingly, the word fetus is never used. It's never used. But the Greek word that is translated with child is used over 26 times. Luke, the physician, records in Luke 1 and verse 35 that Elizabeth, the mother of John, the immerser, conceived a son. In verse 41, the doctor wrote, Dr. Luke, the baby leaped in her womb. The baby not a fetus, a baby, a person leaped in her womb. It is exactly the same Greek word that Luke used to describe Jesus after he was born in Luke 2, 12, and 16. Exactly the same word. And so in God's eyes, the baby that was in the womb is not any different than the baby that is outside of the womb. It is a person. An offspring of God. In the Old Testament, in a similar way, in the midst of his suffering, Job cries out in Job 3 and verse 16. He says, why was I not hidden like a stillborn child, like infants who never saw light? And the point of that is that Job looked at this, the unborn child, as an infant so the bible is quite clear that when we look at the unborn that the unborn is a child that is knit in the womb framed by god a person a human being god's 
offspring. Life is sacred because we share in the divine nature of God. We're not talking about that which is shaped by man's hands. And Paul in our text in Acts 17, that we ought not to think of God, the divine nature, as that which is shaped by man's device like gold or silver or stone. The divine nature is buried deep inside of each person. And that's what makes life sacred. Peter said in 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to glory and virtue, by which we have been given exceeding great and precious promises that through these you might be partakers of the divine nature. Now I want you to think about that a little bit. The word, by the word, the word, by the way, the word partaker there is the same word that is translated fellowship, koinonia. And it means a share, a partner in something, that we partake of something, that we are partakers in the divine nature. We partake in deity. We partake in the divine nature of God. Now, this has led some people to an extreme position that we're just little gods. That's not what Peter is saying, that we're little gods. We're created in the image of God. We're his offspring, and thus we partake in his divine nature. Now, I indicated this just a minute ago a little bit. Let's, let's take this thought a little further as we think about the divine nature of God. You look at the emotion of God, the rationality of God, the personality of God. I want to submit to you, and I'd be glad to be challenged, and I'll get up next week and admit it if I'm wrong about this. But other than the miraculous, supernatural attributes of God, you know those words that we call the old words, omnipotent, omniscient, those words? Other than those supernatural aspects, we have the ability to partake in all the kinds of things that God does in the Bible. Now again, listen to what I said. I didn't say miraculous things or supernatural things. I mean, you look at all the emotions that you see of God in the Bible. That God loves, that God hates, that God is a jealous God, that God gets angry. I mean, all it, 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 runs, it runs the gamut of emotions. We have that. We're partakers of the right nature. You know, in the beginning, God created. Now, again, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. We can't be involved in a miraculous creation. But hasn't God given us creative ability? I mean, you look at this world in which we live and you look at the accomplishments and in this technological age, you look at a computer. I, I don't understand much of it. I know how to do what I know how to do. <laughs> but if something goes wrong, it takes someone way smarter than me to figure out how I messed it up. And I marvel sometimes that, that man could come up with that. And now I got a little flash drive that has more memory on this little fast drive I put in my pocket that the first computer had. In fact, I suppose our cell phones probably have more memory than the first computer has. I see some of you techie people nodding your heads. That's true. Well, how is that so? I tell you how it's so, because man has creative ability. You look at an artist's painting. I mentioned art a while ago. How, how does a person come up with that creative ability? 
How does a person write a song? The songs that we've sung tonight, I guess we all know that God didn't give us our songbooks. Okay? These, these are words of men that poets and uh, lyricists that have written these and others sometimes have come along and put them to music. Don't you marvel at the creative ability? How is we sing? How singing inspires us? And it lifts us, it ennobles us, it motivates us, it challenges. Isn't there just something that, that music touches your innermost being? Why is that? Because we're partakers of the divine nature. That's why. That we're different than the animal kingdom. That we share in the divine nature of God. Life is sacred life ought not to be messed with life ought to be cherished because of who god is and because of who we are now let's bridge this and go back to Acts 17 verse 29 therefore since we are the offspring of god we ought not to think of the divine nature as like gold or silver or stone or something shaped by art and man's devising truly these times of ignorance God overlooked but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead and so I have three closing points therefore therefore based on what we have talked about tonight because of who God is and because of who we are and we believe in the sanctity of life, therefore, let us be righteous. The gospel reveals God's righteousness, Romans 1, 17. And this text tells us that he's going to judge us in righteousness. Therefore, we need to seek what is right. John said in 1 John 3 and verse 7, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. I submit to you tonight, ladies and gentlemen, young people and old people, that the sanctity of life is right. Honoring, preserving, and respecting life is right and of all people it ought to be christians who hold up the banner of what is morally and ethically right let us be righteous secondly let us be responsible i mentioned a moment ago about the freedom of choice and certainly our society talk so much about our right to choose but our society ironically is slow to focus on the results of those choices and the results of those choices has to do with responsibility there are any number of studies that have come out about the effects of abortion one of the studies i read said more than half of the women obtaining abortions 52% are younger than 25, while another 20% are teenagers. 
goes on to say, on average, young women give at least three reasons for choosing an abortion. Three quarters say that having a baby would interfere with their work, school, or other responsibility. Two-thirds say they cannot afford a child, and one-half said they do not want to be a single parent or who are having problems with their husband or boyfriend. Yet, of that, 84% of women who choose an abortion say they would have kept their babies under better circumstances. If abortions were illegal, 72% say they would not have sought an abortion. David Reardon, in his book, The Jericho Plan, says, Abortion is an act of despair. He notes that over 70% of women undergoing abortion believe the procedure is morally wrong. He writes they act against their conscience because they feel they have no other choice. He points out those who are experiencing doubt or grief or regret about abortion are unable to share that pain. He said, and I quote, they don't feel they can share with their own family, much less their church, because they're afraid of rejection. If they try to share their grief with someone who is pro-choice, they're going to be told, just forget it and go on with your life. It really wasn't a baby. And I can tell you the people that I have had some contact with that have dealt with this will tell you that it is a burden on your conscience that you never get over. That you never get over. There are consequences when we fail to act responsibly do what God would have us to do. Paul said in Galatians 6, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever man sows, that will he also reap. For he who sows of the flesh will the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows of the Spirit will the Spirit reap everlasting life. And then my third point, and we'll close, is therefore let us be ready. Let us be ready to embrace God's truth on this. Let us be ready to stand for truth. Let us be ready that we might live lives ready for the judgment. For Paul said we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of the deeds done of the body, whether according to that which we have done, whether it be good or whether it be evil. And let us be ready and work to win other people to the Lord and to make a difference in the lives of other people. You know, this Friday, there will be another march in Washington. There have been marches. And this, the marches lately have gotten a lot of news coverage. It would be interesting to see if the march, the Right to Life march is this Friday, of women that are going to D.C. to stand against abortion. A pro-life march. I wonder if they'll get the same coverage. They may or they may not. I personally doubt it, but they, they may get some coverage. You don't have to go to Washington, D.C. to march. would be anything wrong with it if you did. You don't have to. But you know, in our little circles of influence, where we live, where we work, where we go to school, the clubs that we're involved in, we can stand for what's right, and we can stand for life the sanctity of life. And so I want to encourage each of us tonight to be emboldened. And as we think, and we ought to mourn, really, 58 million plus babies slaughtered on the altar of selfishness and immorality and injustice. It's a sad plight. 
Fortnite. I don't want to leave this lesson tonight without saying this. Because I know on an audience of this size, there very well could be some of you here that have been touched by this issue in a personal way. Either directly or indirectly in a family or through a close friend. And you know, there is, even with all of this, good news. Because the good news is a person that has had an abortion, paid for abortion, been involved in that sin, can get forgiveness. Isn't that good news? That God can wipe it from his memory. And the blood of Jesus can cleanse you and make you as white as snow again. And you can stand right and righteous before him. To think that there is no sin, regardless of how black or despicable or, or the consequences of it in so many ways, that God can't forgive? That's good news. And so I think we can leave here tonight with hope, with the promise of God, that regardless of what may have happened in our past lives or what we may be involved in, that if we truly come to God to make our lives right before Him, that God will receive us and He will be a father to us. And He calls us to be His sons and His daughters and to be in His kingdom. May God bless each of us to that end and to have that kind of influence on the lives of other people. And so as we close our worship tonight, we close again with a song of invitation and encouragement. If there's something we can do to help you, if we can lift you before the throne of God in prayer, or help you in your obedience to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ through faith, repentance, and baptism, if you, we would invite while together we stand and while we sing.